Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it, you love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane. I am so excited for you guys to finally hear the chat with the man, the myth, the legend, the Bagman, Mike Bagley. First part of two total with Baggy. We chatted for almost two hours a couple weeks ago he gave me so much of his time and for a dude that talks for a living he talked a lot more than he needed to with me he could have easily said hey man you know what i do a lot of talking people know my story let's just keep it short and sweet but to baggy's credit he's a man of his word i stopped in the middle i said listen i want to be conscious of time you want to stop here two words keep digging so i kept digging <laughs> we'll keep digging next week and you'll hear part two of the chat with mike but we're gonna start with part one. Before we do any of that though, we gotta pay homage to the number 55. You know, when I think of 55, I think of I Can't Drive 55, and I'm sure my dad does too. But let's hear what he has cooked up in this week's Wayback segment. I have a feeling it has to do with somebody that may be large, but is also tiny. Thank you, Duve. Welcome everyone to episode 155. Hope everyone enjoyed their July 4th long weekend as much as Tyler Reddick. Congrats to him, and congrats also to our host, his grandpa and my dad, Pop-Pop Siegel, and the King Richard Petty, who celebrated their birthdays on July 2nd. Kachiga! The 50s have been tough so far, but not this week. A plethora, happy birthday, Doof, of worthy candidates to choose from. Michael Waltrip has the most starts in the number, but we've already given Mikey his due. Junior Johnson won his first five races in the 55 during 1955. How about that numerology? But we've already talked about Junior as well. So, today, the Wayback Lens takes aim on the man with the second most starts in the 55, including four wins. Dwayne Lewis Lund stood six feet five and tipped the scales at close to 300 pounds so it makes perfect sense that he was given the nickname of Tiny. We previously related how Lund arrived in Daytona in 1963 looking for a ride. When his friend Marvin Panch was involved in a testing accident, Tiny heroically ran to the burning car and rescued Panch. He was awarded with Panch's ride in the big race, and he made the most of it. Fast Freddie Lorenzen and Gentleman Ned Jarrett both ran out of gas, and Lund took the checkered flag after running out himself and coasting over the line. As with too many other greats of his time, Lund's career came to a tragic end. In 1975 at Talladega, Lund got into a wreck with J.D. McDuffie. They spun down the track and triggered a chain reaction mess behind them. Lund's car was hit hard in the driver's door by one of the other spinning cars. He was extricated from his car and taken to the infield care center where he died of chest and internal injuries. He was 45. Tiny Lund was named one of NASCAR's 50 greatest drivers in 1988 and was inducted into the International Motorsports Hall of Fame as well as the Motorsports Hall of Fame of America. That's all for this week. Back to you, Doof. Thank you, Dad, for that wonderful homage and history lesson. And thank you, Mom, as well, for the kuchigas. Let's start off this episode, as we always do, with a good old-fashioned reggaeton. <laughs> and throw it straight over to our chat. Part one with Mike Bagley of SiriusXM NASCAR Radio, the Motor Racing Network, and the man with the bags. It's the Bagman. We covered a ton of ground in this chat, and in this part one, it was no different. We hit on his background in the sport. He is a native son of Delaware. I'm actually recording this part of the episode 
from Delaware. So we chatted about how he got started in the sport, how he got started with the Motor Racing Network, what he did before he got there, and how he went to school with some of these broadcasting legends. Eli Gold, Alan Beswick, Barney Hall, Joe Moore. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And it was really interesting to hear his perspective on back in the day, what broadcasting on the radio looked like, how that has changed, or maybe not, to where we are now. Again, there is so many different things that we hit on in just part one of this conversation. So I'm going to get out of the way and let you hear it for yourself. Without further ado, the long-awaited part one chat with the man himself, Mike Bagley, everybody. Pleasure to welcome on to the show today. Man, this has been a long time coming. It is Sirius XM host, Motor Racing Network turn announcer, Motor Racing Network booth announcer, the man with the bags. It is Mike Bagley. I cannot believe that this is finally happening at long last. You are on the other side of the screen, and we are doing it, Bagman. Come on. This has been, what, months in the making between yes. your schedule and my schedule. We've been finally been able to get this put together. So I'm glad to be here. I have watched this podcast. I have watched those victims uh, that have come through this podcast, <laughs> and now I can add my name to that list. Yes. I'm sure you're happy to be a victim today, huh? Indeed, I am. For you, anytime. Wow. So kind. Well, PD's been on before. Uh, I've talked to Sammy about even bringing him on, but he's not He's not wanting to be a victim. So I guess you're the second TMD victim. You may be the last. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe. <laughs> Best for last. Well, uh, let's start with your trip out west. I know that you just got back from there. It was kind of your first extended stay out on the left coast. How was that? Did you see some sights and some sounds that you hadn't seen before? It was very interesting. I had been going to Phoenix for the season finale, but I had never really been out West for a prolonged period of time like ever. I'd always wanted to do a West Coast swing. Mm -hmm. So I worked the uh, Arco West and the Xfinity races at Portland. And then I worked the Arco West race and the truck race at Sonoma. I'm like, you know, why don't I just stay out there? So hopped on a plane on that Sunday morning after the, um, after the Xfinity race and went to Las Vegas and spent the week in Vegas and then flew up to San Francisco, did the truck race and came right back home. Life is different out there. And you know, you know, what's interesting is that I became totally disassociated with time. You know, where you are, you think that is all that matters. But when you're out West and you operate on an East Coast schedule, oh yeah, you know, you, know, you, you sit there, hey, it's 6.30, 7 o'clock. You may have just gotten done with dinner around 8 o'clock. Hey, let me call somebody back home. Well, it's 11 o'clock back home. So between being on vacation, being disassociated with time on the watch, but also disassociated with time during the week, that to me is the perfect unplug, but it's compounded with time zone changes. Yeah. And for those of us that are headquartered and based on the East Coast and you out West, it's kind of hard to keep it together, but we had a good time. And now getting back on and acclimated to East Coast time for what will be all the way until... Well, really, Phoenix, when we go back out for championship weekend, when we go out to Arizona at the beginning of November. Yeah, it, it's a different vibe out there, and the time zone changes. I mean, when you go out west as often as some people in the industry do, it's kind of second nature. But mm -hmm. for you, staying out there for that long and then coming back and having to wake up at the ass crack of dawn like you do all the time, jet lag probably was a, was a pain in the butt for a little bit, I bet. Well, I red-eyed back. Um, okay. got done with the truck race and immediately hauled buggy to the airport, got to the airport, had a couple of flight delays. We never left San Francisco till like midnight. Oof. Um, and then we got back to Philly. It was about eight o'clock in the morning that day. I was fried. It's like, I came back, chilled out. I watched the, uh, watched the cup race, of course, getting ready for TMD the following morning and, uh, didn't have a lot of energy, but I was willing to do that. Then take the day and fly home and yeah. lose all that time and never landing until four or five o'clock and all that stuff. So it worked out good. Jet lag is gone. Now we're back in God's country and now we're ready to set sail for what remains for the rest of the racing season. Uh, nothing says God's country like Delaware, right? That's right. Delmarva, son. That's where That's it's right. at. Well, speaking of Delaware, let's start there. Uh, I know you're a native son of Delaware, a Delawarean, one may say. But I didn't know, were you actually born in Salisbury in the great state uh, of Maryland? I was. I was actually born in Salisbury uh, to Walt and Inez Bagley. 
We stayed in Salisbury till I was two and then moved to Milford, Delaware when I was two. And that's where I've been the majority of my life outside of moving to various places around the country. You know, Salisbury has a college there. You know what their mascot is? The Seagulls. Yes, sir. State University Seagulls. Look at me. Wow. I should have been the native son of Salisbury if we're talking. Well, perhaps maybe we can get you on the Salisbury coin or whatever okay. they have that has Salisbury on it. We'll, Give me a key we'll, to we'll the city. To get you on there. That's right. You deserve it. Um, you know that I do my research, Mike. And I know you do. And this is victim, what I'm scared of. Being a victim, I had to get into the deep crevasses of my research. So, you know, before we get into the racing and TMD and MRN and everything, tell me about your time as a quality assurance specialist and policy and procedure specialist back in the day. <laughs> Oh, you really went digging, didn't, yeah, didn't you? Did. All right. So I worked for, actually, I worked for Chase Manhattan Bank. Um, I worked for Aetna, and I worked for Cigna International Expatriate Benefits, mm -hmm. CIEB. And I have always been, I actually started out as a kid. I was very shy, right? I was very shy. I mean, mom, dad, and me would go someplace. I would hide behind them. I was, I was petrified of people. That changed actually when I went to work as a busboy at Colony Inn Restaurant in Milford. <laughs> and that's the first job I ever had. Got that job when I was 15, started bussing tables, eventually became a server, became a host. Well, it's through that process and that job that I tapped into. I was, I had this inner social butterfly thing going on. And I, was around people. I became, you know, that guy at the restaurant that was the goofy guy, the funny guy sure. that would interact with all the people. And it's there that I came out of that, out of that cocoon and became this very outgoing individual. Well, that coupled with my desire to teach that role that you mentioned part of that role was being a trainer. And I was, and I actually trained customer service people to process health insurance claims and talk on the phone and be a customer service representative. And then the policy procedure part of that was in addition to doing that, I wrote the curriculum for the training for the insurance company. And I also wrote the policies and procedures for the insurance company for processing claims and you know, how to deal with things on the phones and all that stuff. So what you're referring to there is a part of my professional life that had me doing that during the week, but I would also fly out on the weekends and do the races, fly back, go to work at the office, and then go back on the road and basically was swapping back and forth between both of those jobs simultaneously. Now you were talking about hectic. That was when we were starting races at one o'clock on Sundays. Yeah. Last flight out was eight or nine o'clock. I would get home at 12, one o'clock in the morning, be in the office at seven o'clock the next day, and then being done with work at four on an airplane at like five 30 yeah. and then going to the racetrack on Thursdays or Fridays. Remember I, I would have to go to work. Yeah. Okay. So I was going to ask what time period that was, but that was already when you were in with MRN and going to the racetrack and stuff. So at that point in time for however long that mm -hmm. was, you were kind of double dipping, living your Hannah Montana, best of both worlds, life your your office job during the week. And then you're going racing on the weekends. I, I imagine that had to be pretty hectic, especially catching the late flights too. I mean, God, I hope you didn't have any, any delays because that would not have been fun. Oh, we had delays. <laughs> oh, we, we had delays. See, the most tense part of the whole process was having rain at the racetrack and having rain or delays and sometimes missing a flight yeah. or having to stay over to do it's a rain worst. out, having to call my boss and say, I can't come in today because I'm actually in Rockingham, North Carolina. We rained out the Xfinity race and we're running that race today and I'll see you Tuesday. That didn't go over too well. They didn't no. take too highly to, to that. So how long did you end up staying in that role? Because I can imagine from from your boss's point of view in the office job, if that keeps happening, that's a bit of a nuisance. But then also, you know, your passion and your heart lies at the racetrack. So how long did you end up staying in that desk job? I stayed there, well, it was with Aetna and Cigna. I would say maybe five or six years. It wasn't until I got to Cigna so that they actually embraced what I did. They thought it was actually pretty cool. And they put me on a four-day work week. Um, nice. They let me have Fridays off to travel, but they put me on a 7A to 7P work schedule Monday through Thursday. The brutal part of that was making sure that you were back for, because they already given me Fridays off. Um, they're sometimes had to take vacation days and all that. 
I would say that lasted five or six years or so. And then a full-time opportunity came up with MRN. And then I, I jumped totally out of the corporate world or the business world or the desk job world. Yeah. And then went doing this full-time. So let's talk about racing. Let's get into the nitty gritty. Don't worry. The, uh, the victimization has not stopped. We'll get there later. I'm sure. <laughs> uh, so the passion for racing, I know that you mentioned, you know, you were going to dirt tracks in the Delmarva area kind of growing up and your parents kind of instilled that passion and that background for you in the sport of racing. Tell me a little bit about those times growing up, going to the track with your parents and, and what those days were like when you were younger and you were really starting to kind of understand and first start going to the racetrack and what you thought about all of it. Well, legend has it as dad used to explain it, that my first race was that I attended was in mom's arms in a blanket. So that would have put me at around less than one year old. I maintained that that happened because dad wanted to go to the races and didn't want to leave mom and me home. So <laughs> everybody got loaded up in the old car and everybody went to the racetrack. But it was through that 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 started at US 13 Speedway, now known as Delaware International, in Del Mar, Delaware, a city too big for one state. Literally half of it right down the middle of the street. Half is in Delaware, half is in America. Kind of like what Bristol, Tennessee, say, like Bristol, Bristol Virginia right. is. So we started going there, and that's where my love for motorsports really picked up, and that's where it really developed. We would go there Saturday night. One of the big things we looked forward to in the summer was we had the, the Camp Barnes Benefit Night, which Camp Barnes is a camp with the Delaware State Police, and they would bring out Delaware State Police back then. I don't know if they have – I don't know if they still have it, but they used to have a thing called Trooper Dan. Trooper Dan was a Volkswagen Beetle with a big Delaware State Troopers hat on top of it. And they would take Trooper Dan out to the racetrack. They would bring the dogs out and they would show them doing little things, uh, you know, jumping over this, jumping through that and all that stuff. They would set stuff on fire. They would have like attack dogs, attack cops, you know, with the, with the Kevlar that they had on yeah. and all the, the protective gear and all that. That was always a Wednesday night in the middle of the summer. Um, so we would go to the weekly program always on Saturday nights. They would have, you know, Camp Barnes in the middle of the summer. And then by going through that repetitiously, you know, you get to learn the drivers, you get to learn that. And mm -hmm. I, as an only child with no activities and nobody to play with in the neighborhood that I was growing up, I latched on to racing. So I looked forward to, I lived for those Saturdays when we would go to, to Del Mar. And then it's through that that led me on to the next phase, which is listening to it on the radio. And, and, and getting this, this love and this fondness for radio that I have. But I also appreciate through that, living that, and now looking back on that, how critical and crucial the grassroots level is. And those men and women at the grassroots level that put on these weekly uh, programs and, and operate these weekly racetracks, if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be here right now because I may not have even known what motorsports was. So we use the grassroots level for many things. We use it for the up and coming crew chief, the up and coming mechanic, the up and coming driver. But there's also something to be said about the grassroots level as far as the up and coming fan. Take a child to the racetrack, expose them to motorsports, pass on to them what was passed on to you, and then let that motorsport seed bloom and blossom. And that's where the next generation of not only driver comes from, but also your next generation of fan it's what produced me into what I am today and my love of motorsports that goes along with that. Yeah, it's a great point. And I mean, like myself growing up in Rockville and the greater DC area, not really a target rich environment for racing. There's not a lot of nope. racetracks nearby. There's not a lot of race fans that live in the area. So my first exposure to motorsports was a trip to Dover in 2002. I had never gone to a local short track. I had never gone to a dirt track. My first dirt race was at the K&N West race in Vegas, and that wasn't even really a dirt race. My first short track race, if you want to call it that, was Richmond. Like, I, I had never gone to a local short track race, and when I started, you know, covering K&N races and seeing kind of the local divisions over there and seeing how everything worked, I was in my late teens, early 20s, but I really enjoyed that because I had never gotten that, like, you and a lot of other people, whether it be drivers, mechanics, crew chiefs, most of the race fans, that's where their passion starts at an early age. So having that for you built in and then to also obviously do that with your family and your parents who kind of instilled that with you, I'm sure as you're now very entrenched in the professional side of things, 
it can get monotonous at certain times. And that's not to say that whenever we go to the racetrack, we're not having the time of our lives. But at the same time, that makes you probably appreciate those days when you were younger and you were going to the racetrack purely as a fan. And looking back on those times, I'm sure that you have really fond memories just with your family and then also just understanding how simpler those times were. Well, it's interesting for me, motorsports has played a very unique part in my life to what we just described, you know, as a, as a young bag man or as a young Mike Bagley, you know, I'm four, five, six, seven, eight years old. You know, you're, you're, you're new to motorsports, but you know, you're bonding with your parents later in life, you know, as teenagers do teenagers think they know it all. And, and, and at times relationships can become strained with parents and, and mine, my relationship with my father was strained for years, but there's one common common thing that brought us together and served as a catalyst for us to see eye to eye. And that's time spent at the racetrack, which a lot of that, when that happened, then Dover was in the mix, right? We had gotten away from Del Mar because now we moved in Do- to, to Dover and um, going to the racetrack and, and, you know, not seeing eye to eye, but having that, at least that one common thread and that one common thread was Dover, was NASCAR, was being at the racetrack. And then after I lost my father and I lost my mother, you know, going back to Dover after that happened served as a bit of comfort for me after a while. It was very, it was very rough at first to go back without them because I had spent 40 plus years with them there. Sure. But without having them and going back there over a period of time, it's almost been a part of the healing process because that provided me an opportunity to look back on fun things and, and, and fond things to remind me of them instead of losing them and the sadness and the grief that comes along with that. So for me, motorsports has always played an important part of my life, but depending on what wave or what period of my life, it's meant a different thing every single time. Yeah. Very well said. So you mentioned going down uh, to the local short tracks and growing up and understanding kind of how things work. That's when you're, fascination and infatuation with radio began. Can you tell me a little bit about why you were drawn to that medium? Because I know that races weren't necessarily being broadcast on a regular basis at that point in your life. Yes, I'm aging you. Um, but why radio? Why not Why not get into racing as a driver? Why not try to work in the pits? Why radio? Why did that draw you in? Well, well number one, we didn't have the monetary resources that you need to become a driver. And I didn't really have any type of aspiration to drive. Growing up as an only child in a neighborhood with no children, I had to entertain myself. There weren't kids that I played with that I would ride bikes with, it was just me. So I had a set of Hot Wheels. And what I would do is we had a shag rug in the family room. And I would take the shag rug and I would mat that shag rug down in the shape of whatever track that we were racing at. If it was Pocono, it was a triangle. If it was oh. Daytona, it was a triangle. If it was Martinsville, it was an oval. Didn't do Riverside too well. I couldn't get the turn to right because I didn't know the say. map because we didn't have internet back then. I didn't really know how Riverside was shaped. So you could I have used some to... elevation with the shag rug though, you know? Well, then I had to dig the staples up and all yeah. that. And then I got dad dancer too. So I weighed that off. I stayed strictly flat tracks. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and ovals and things like that. So what I would do is on Sundays, this is in the days before we had NASCAR on TV, except for the Daytona 500, the Talladega 500, and the Michigan 400. We got three races on TV. Hmm. We had three channels in the TV. We had the antenna outside the house. We had to go in and turn the knob and wait for the antenna to click around, click up, click up, click up, click up and get pointed towards Baltimore, because that was where we got the best reception to watch TV from. We couldn't watch local news. We had to watch Baltimore news. And we lived in Delaware at the time. So we were very limited. So that's where the radio came into play. We stumbled across the races on the radio. And our local affiliate in Dover, well, our local radio station, WAFL, 97.7, the country king, as it was known back then, was an MRN affiliate. They also had... um, the Universal Racing Network back in the day. I remember when the Universal Racing Network did Darlington. That was before MRN got those broadcast rights. So that goes way back in the 70s. 
So what I would do is I would take the radio and I would plug it in. I would set it next to the shag rug track that I had. And I would wait for the broadcast to come on. And as the broadcast is unfolding, of course, you didn't have a visual medium. I created my own. I would move the cars around that track, listening to Barney Hall, Mike Joy, Ned Jarrett, and Eli Gold. And did that for years and years and years. Then we got fancy when we desired banking. We had this sofa that I would pull the cushions out with. And that I would then either pull the cushions out to get a bank front stretch or bank bank like shove a book underneath the cushions to create banking and then that would become the track you know that was like the all-star race yeah, that's, that's right well listen we didn't have that much to work with you yeah. had to think on the fly so then that became the the latching on point while at the same time i listened to a lot of radio because we didn't get much on tv so by listening to you know david james was our was our morning dj ron anderson would do the nights alex bond um, there were a lot of guys that I would listen to growing up, and I became infatuated with the radio and the man behind the microphone to the point to where I would be that guy that whenever they would give away stuff, I would be trying to call and win, trying to call and win, trying to call and win. And when I did, I would go over to the radio station, pick up the prize, but I would then go and I would stand in the hall and I would look at the guy in the booth, look at the DJ in the booth, watching him put the records on watching him move the carts to run the spots and all that. And then sometimes they would ask me to come in the studio and I was mesmerized that this is where it happens. This is where basically the sausage is made. I know what I hear on the other side of the radio, but then now being in it, I was yeah. fascinated by it. And I wanted to become a DJ. That was my, that was one of my career paths. And I went home one night and mom was like, you know what I want to do with my life? I want to be a DJ. She says, what? Huh? <laughs> you want what? That's when she summoned dad to talk me off the ledge. Uh, and then I quickly learned that, 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 that the, you know, the, the starting pay for a DJ back in those days was $9,000 a year. No money in that at all. Breaking it in. We moved, we moved on to other, to other desires <laughs> and whatnot, but the, the DJ part was all that. But I still was fascinated now with the radio station, but I became fascinated by what I heard coming from the racetrack. Because without the visual, like a lot of us have today, you relied on the descriptions of those that were describing it to you. Barney Hall, hearing his voice and his style and Mike and Eli and, and Ned and, you know, all those guys that were on pit road and, and in the turns and all this stuff, you became fascinated by that. And then that is what also increased my love for NASCAR and my desire to see it in person because I couldn't see it other than those three times a year on CBS that I mentioned just a little bit ago. Right. So your infatuation with radio at that point when you were younger, that is very entrenched in you, right? So you think, okay, not going to be a DJ. I like racing. Let's try to go down that path. Fast forward a lot of time, you are very well there. But how did you get there? I know that running cable at Dover was something that you did to kind of get started. And then you ended up doing your first race broadcast, I think maybe the same year. But leading up to that, how did you get to a point where you were in a position to work with MRN in a limited capacity, and then it kind of evolved into what it is today. But what were the steps that you took to get to that point? Well, it had started before that. Um, I this was in I graduated from Milford High in 1987, and when I towards the end of that, I then became motivated to become a teacher. My my initial career path was to become a history teacher. And that was motivated by Joe McDonald, who has since passed away. God bless his soul. Mr. McDonald was the only teacher that could stand in front of me and it keep my attention. And it was the way he presented things. We're talking about the Civil War. We're talking about the War of 1812. We're talking about westward expansion past the Mississippi. And to a lot of people, that was snooze time, right? Oh, me, I was locked in. I was fascinated with the way he prepared his materials, the way he presented it, the way he stood up and the way he put it out there and how gregarious he was. And that motivated me to want to become a teacher. So I was entertaining that idea. While at the same time, I became the seven to midnight DJ when I was a senior in high school. So I would go to school during the day. I would then DJ at night and then you know, hop back and forth. So you were kind of living the dream. 
kind of at that same time, that time that's yeah. where the living the dream began well i wrote a letter to motor racing network in 1988 and it was to general manager john mcmullen and i said listen i'm a big nascar fan i'm very interested in radio would you guys need any help when you come to dover well not thinking i'm going to get you know a response i got a letter back saying yes we would be very interested in having you help us out but i would also like to chat with you by phone well Later on in life, I would find that John was spectacular at harvesting young talent. His son had engaged in an exercise to become a baseball player. And, and that was the course he was, he, he would work with kids. He was a big baseball guy. His son was interested in baseball, fostering him, nurturing him. And then that came over into the professional side too, where he would, he would find these, these young announcers and would work with them and nurture them. Other announcers like Winston Kelly, Alex Hayden, Kurt Becker were all brought in in the McMullen regime. Well, I was one of them that was brought in as well. You know, he asked me you know, about things. And, and then I will later find out that dad and John were having behind the scenes conversation. And, you know, dad was like, can you help him out? And he's just a teenager. He's all he's just he's just a <laughs> skull full of mush. Get the kid off my you hands, know. please. Just please. Just please. I can't make sense to him. Let you. Yeah. And then that's when, um, you know, John gave me some advice about doing some public address work. And I would then, I became doing PA at Dover. He got me a PA gig at Daytona. I did PA at, Day at uh, Pocono. Um, I think there was one other track as well to where I would start getting my feet wet. And at that time, they would bring MRN people in like Eli and like Alan and Joe Moore and Jim Phillips and Winston to work PA on Fridays. Well, I would be there sometimes and I would sit in with them. And at the same time, John would get me credentials to help MRN at on the race weekend. I would help them, but also during the race broadcast, I would stand in the booth and I would just watch Eli and Barney, watch what they're doing, listen to what they were saying, and then start to mimic them. And not necessarily just rip off their stuff, but learn how they did it you know, and then, you know, later on, it would go to a next level as to the whys they were doing that and, yeah. and, and the purpose that would serve. So put all this together, I was in the PA booth one day in 1992. And I was in the middle of calling practice and the phone rings. I pick up the phone, PA booth. And uh, can I speak to Mike Bagley? Speaking. It's John McMullen. Hey, John, how are you? He wasn't there that weekend. And he says, uh, question for it. Well, let me back up. We used to do special editions of NASCAR Live in the enclosed grandstands, and I would help set up, right? I would set the microphones up with the cables, get the mixer set up, right. all this stuff, and I would handle all, all the operations. I was doing mic checks, you know, check, check, one, two, three, four, five. Here they come, and I turn number two. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the engineer at the time was Clay Stalka. Clay would be in the trailer, the other side of the track, putting all this together and checking the mics. He, he went to John and said, you know, you might want to give this kid a second listen. And then eventually John called me, and John said, um, hey, we've got an opening at, um, at Watkins Glen. Would you be interested in working a turn? Well, yeah, hell yeah, I'll work a turn at Watkins Glen. Now, at the time, though, I didn't know that I was biting off more than I could chew. So it was a back big old then, mess. It was a big old, okay, we'll get to that. <laughs> yes, we will. So, at that time, as a prospective announcer, this is the shirt that you wanted. You wanted the, the, the shirt with this logo. It still is. And when I got that, I was just like, I have arrived. You do not <laughs> know how much this means. You could, Santa could skip me for the next 10 Christmases. I have what I've always wanted to have. And I'm also going to be able to announce a NASCAR race on MRN. So, that's when that began. And actually, the 30th anniversary of that happening is at the end of this month. It's my 30th anniversary at the end of June. Wow. I thought it was awful, but obviously, John heard something that he liked, and they kept having me back on a very part time basis for about four or five years. And then business started to pick up on the MRN front. Let me go back for a second. So, like in today's day and age, right? 
you can't really get a shot at doing something like PA at a track or tr- turn announcing, whatever, if you don't have experience and you don't have somebody in your corner. You had somebody in your corner, right? But when you were given these opportunities to do PA at Dover, Daytona, that's that's a big deal. Pocono, all these different things. Are these going based off just John giving you a chance or did you have experience doing things before? Like, did you have anything on your resume up until that point or was it more so just going into a cold turkey? I had, the only thing I had was doing the DJ work that I was doing. Right. Um, you know, I so would, nothing I would, racing I, wise, like on the microphone. Nothing. Wow. Nothing at all. And it was, it was John taking a chance, but he also saw my passion and my desire to do it. Right. And he also saw my willingness to do the grunt work and do the work that you don't want to do to put yourself in a position to at some point do it. But, but when I started doing that, I had no inclination to be an announcer. It wasn't like, well, let me run these cables because I want to do the turn at North Wilkesboro next weekend. It wasn't any of that. It was, I, w- I just wanted to be associated with MRN. I wanted to be associated with NASCAR. And I was fine at that time being one of the runners and one of the production assistants. Hmm. But it was through that, that John, all right, well, let's see what, ha- you know, let, let's let him, let, let me talk to the track. We'll get him into PA booth at Dover. And it's almost you know like what? he saw something in you that you didn't even... No, I didn't even know it was there. I had no idea that yeah. it was there. No idea whatsoever. Um, it's totally different now. And then now I'm in that position to where I have younger folks approaching me for advice and, and, and mentorship and all that stuff. And I pay that back because of what John did with me. But when John saw me, I had no racing experience whatsoever. I then had PA experience that led me to that Watkins Glen, that fateful day in Watkins Glen for the phase 150 almost 30 years ago <laughs> oh and it was a big old mess as they went into turn number one wasn't it all right so this is the <laughs> second time you've referenced this this is a drop that we play that uh was supplied to sirius xm from our friends at the motor racing Network. An iconic drop i might add all right so so we go to watkins Glen, right now this is the first race I have ever announced. I've never even had a turn announcer headset on before. So I go there. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just looking at what everybody else is doing and then just doing what they're doing. Well, you have to think back at that time on that broadcast that day. It was Eli Gold and Alan Bestwick in the booth. Legendary voices. I have listened to these guys for years. You had Joe Moore in the S's. You had at that time Rick Benjamin on the backstretch. Then you had Fred Armstrong on pit road. You had Jim Phillips, Winston Kelly, and Gary Montgomery. And they dropped me into the middle of all that. They put me down in the 90, which is turn one. And at that time, that was the turn that could be overlooked if I turned into be a train wreck. They didn't come to me every lap, but they came to me enough so they could get a little flavor and a little taste. Sure. So here comes the opening of the broadcast or, or the, the, the pace laps are beginning. I am a mess. I am set. a total mess. Knees were knocking. And here comes the windup. You know, Eli, I feel you know, 3.45 miles or whatever, 2.45 miles. And now let's take a swing around the racetrack. Coming at the, uh, I, I forget the exact windup, but it was, um, you know, uh, joining the motor racing network for the very first time is Mike Bagley of Milford, Delaware, who will be watching the cars come straight at him from his position in turn one, which by the way, turn one in the 90, you're looking right at the front stretch and all you see are noses of cars and right. sunshine, you know, hits off windshields. Then they drop down into the corner. You couldn't see anything. So when he dropped that, the first words out of my mouth were good afternoon. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone, which that's a drop as well. Absolutely. Now, that was a younger bag man. And there are certain parts of my anatomy that had yet to descend. So I sounded <laughs> much. I was a high talker way back in the day. I was 21, 22 at the time. Right. So I hadn't fully developed as a man. We pushed through. Get done with the scene set. Except for right before the very end, I'm trying to describe what's going to happen. I totally wanted up firewall deep, right? And the only thing I can think of, well, it's a big mess down here in turn one. <laughs> and and that's the only thing that came out of my mind, which has since made been made into a drop that you sometimes hear on TMD. Yeah. So, so then uh, I handed it off to Joe. One of the things that happened in that race broadcast 
David Donahue was uh-huh. in the race. Had that in my notes too. <laughs> and so David Donahue looped it in turn one. I jump in. Trouble in turn one. Phil Donahue is around <laughs> at the end of the front stretch, and I say something, 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 something. Well, I don't realize I have said Phil. We get done with the call. We go to break. Eli keys up in the break. Hey, Winston, could you slide over to the care center? Because I think Phil is joining Oprah for a post-crash interview. <laughs> well, and I'm like, well, wh- why What's is he, he talking about? That? And then the jabbing began. And when, mm-hmm. when, when you're jabbed, you know you're part of the team. And right. that, yeah, so Phil Donahue. Not sure if y'all know, but Phil Donahue is in the phase 150 that day. It's going Apparently he was. <laughs> yes. Memorable, memorable uh-huh. first broadcast, I'd say. Uh, well, and obviously they heard something that they like because I've been yes. back ever since. Yes. Um, you know, I'm curious because a lot of people, if they want to get into the business, they want to be in a position like yours, they think it's a bit regimented. You know, you start young, you, you have an interest in racing, you go to school, you get your degree in broadcasting, et cetera, et cetera. It seems like you had more of a degree from the school of Barney Hall, Eli Gold, Alan Beswick, and the like in terms of you learned by observing, you learned by doing. It wasn't more so sitting in a classroom and saying, well, this is how you do this because, like you mentioned, this wasn't something that you knew you wanted to do up until you literally did it. So learning from the best in the business, that puts you in a position to succeed. I was very blessed um, on that front because you're right. I, I, I went to the universities of Hall, Gold, and Bestwick. <laughs> and that is... That's an educational process you can't get out of a no. book. Can't you can't buy that there. online. That's not available, you know, at Amazon. That's not available at any any university you could possibly go yes, to. Sir. And and maybe that's a bit skewed for me because I, I always tell younger folks, listen, you obviously you need to educate yourself. I am not a college graduate. I'm very fortunate to have the success that I've had without a college degree. But there is a value to learning things in high school and in college that you may not think are important at the time, but will be, but in a different way. As far as broadcasting is concerned, you can sit there and and you can go to broadcasting schools and all that. They will, they will only teach you so much. But as you know, there's a lot of things that happen in a broadcast that are not in textbooks. You have to exercise judgment based on experience and mentorship. Absolutely. Knowing how to do certain things. I'll give you an example. So people walk up to me. Well, let me tell you this story. And then I'll, I'll give you an example. I had a guy approach me in the garage at Daytona. Hey, man, listen to you all the time. Hey, bud, how are you? Good to see you. Hey, I want to be on MRN. Okay, what do you want to do? Oh, I don't care. I just want to be on the air for MRN. Red flag number one. So that tells me that you want to be an air hawk, right? All you want to hear is hear yourself on, on the radio. You don't have a, 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 a path that you want to go down. You just want to be on the air. Well, it's not as easy. We make it sound easy. PRN makes it sound easy. IMS radio makes it sound easy. It's not easy. So this guy says, yeah, you know, I, uh, I call a hell of a 98 Daytona 500. Man, I call it better than Mike Joy did. Oh, yeah. That's what my friends tell me. That's right. My friends tell me, my friends tell me I am on air ready. I said, all right. I said, um, well, give me, give me some of your work that you've done that doesn't involve calling a race off TV. I don't have any of that stuff. No. I said, uh, you don't have any PA work. You've not, you know, gone to a short track and sat there with a microphone and done play by play into a microphone. No, no, I don't need that because, I, I mean, I got this call. I'm like, okay, well, he, here's the problem with that. You're giving me your call of the 98 Daytona 500, but you have the answers. You know it's how it's going to play out, and you can practice that. A good turn announcer or a good race announcer is good when he or she can give you a call where they don't have the answers and they have to make the call without knowing how it ends. Mm -hmm. We all know how the 1998 Daytona 500 ends. You can name all the races you want. Yeah. That may give you a good foundation, but when you're looking at something on radio, you are tasked with describing it and you have to be colorful with the way you describe it. Anybody can look at the TV 20 times in a row. You know, it kind of, 
it almost reminds me of that movie Sully. You know that 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 scene in Sully. You know the pilot that 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 put the U.S. airplane in the drink there in New York City. You know they're going through and they're they're trying to recreate the accidents and 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 they said, well, you could have gone to Teterboro and here's how. Well, what they show him is what the seventeenth try that they made the landing. They don't tell you about the first sixteen that didn't work out. Well, this is almost a similar case. When you're standing there and you're looking at something, can you accurately describe it the right time with the appropriate energy, the enthusiasm, and accuracy the first time out? A lot of announcers can't. That's why you do PA. That's why you do things on the local level to get to the national level. You have to be put in an experience or a situation to where you can describe things and have them come out cogently with excitement and you're painting that picture that adds value to the broadcast. I can sit here and I can call the 98 Daytona 500 just like Mike Joy did. Right. But but as as a new announcer to do that, you may get excited. But what can you do when you can't see the cars? When all you see is smoke? When you're ducking, you know, debris or rubber pellets and all this stuff? Or maybe the sun is a certain way to where the cars go gray and you can't really make out who's who. How do you make the broadcast sound there? That is what makes a good turn announcer or a good race broadcast announcer. I think I killed that guy's hopes and dreams. I said, come back to me with PA work. Come back to me where you're announcing something where you don't have the answer. Let me hear you then. Then we'll talk. So anyway, I say all that to say that when I learned from Alan and Eli and Barney, I learned a lot of stuff that I could not have learned in college and I could not have learned just listening it's talking to them, watching them, and hearing them do what they do, but also understand and know why they did some of the things they did or did things the, the way or certain way that they did on the broadcast. When I had Striegel on a couple weeks ago, he was telling me about his audition for the Goodies Dash Race at Daytona, and he said he was a bit of a – he wasn't as as big of a wreck as you were at Watkins Glen because he actually was a bit confident, but Barney Hall told him, call what you see. And that's what he did, but it's one thing to call what you see. It's another thing – to do that when you don't know what you are going to see. And that, I think, mm-hmm. is your whole point in the sense of if you call the 98-500, you know how it ends, you know all the drivers, you know what Mike Joy said, so you can go off of what he said, you understand what's going to happen. But as things unfold live at 200 miles an hour right in front of you, understanding how to coherently conduct yourself live on the air, that is a whole nother can of worms. So... Again, you can't learn that in a classroom. You can only learn that by doing and observing the best in the business. Okay, so here's an example to that. So it's not just you pick up a headset and you call the race. You have to understand what it is you're calling and where you're calling it. When you do, say, you know, turn three at Richmond, that's about a five-second drop. So you have to be quicker, but you have to make the words count a lot quicker than you would at some other places. So it's like, you know, when they drop them to you side by side for the lead down the backstretch, here's Chase Elliott. He'll look to the inside of Kyle Busch for third. Boom, done. Well, when you're at Pocono, you're looking almost three quarters of a mile away to see the cars and the cars are about that big. And when Dave drops them out of one and I pick them up in the tunnel turn, you have to slow your pacing down. You have to get more descriptive and be more, I don't want to say laborious but you have to extend the call so that you don't run out of juice halfway down and then you have to go for the second gear and they've not even gotten to you yet. So it's through those exercises and through those, that experience of listening and watching and learning how to adjust to certain things. So it sounds a certain way on the other side and not get swept up with the emotion of the moment or be it backed into a corner, knowing how to call something the same way 25 times. When a guy leads by four seconds over a guy that's leading third by three seconds, you know, being able to drop back an audible back in the field, pick something up, or just basically be descriptive and describe the same thing that you've just described for the last 25 laps to be able to tap into that toolkit. I would not have been able to do unless I had those before me that mentored me. And even the ones I work with now mentor me and help me on how to do that. So after Watkins Glen, I assume that you did a couple more. When did you, figure out that you liked it when did you figure out that you were good at it and how did that develop in your role with mrn i would then i think i did the bush race at new hampshire standalone and i did um the arca race at atlanta and i was one of the turn guys there and when i would go and it was only i they would fly me in to do that and then i would on sunday i was doing nothing 
that's when I would stand in the turn with Joe Moore or Alan when he was a turn announcer back then. It was still when Eli Barney was in the booth. And I would just sit, observe, and learn, and learn, and then cherish those opportunities, maximize those opportunities, basically be a sponge. It wasn't, I didn't do my first 500 until 97, I think it was, that I did my first 500. And then it was like, you know, embrace the opportunity, continue to learn. And then as, as attrition came along, because at that time, you were waiting for others to move so you could have the slot to move in too. Yeah. You know, Ned stepped over and went to TV. Uh, Eli stepped over, he, or uh, stepped out. He went to TNT or TNN. Uh, that elevated Allen up to the booth. That opened up a turn spot. They would rotate people in there. So basically you're waiting for people to move on to their next project or their, their next opportunity, which then created an opportunity. And eventually when we got into the late nineties is when that began for me. And then in the early two thousands, it looked like that, you know, it was going to be good. That's when, that's when the dual, you know, insurance company uh, bank thing. And then, and then this happened and that was doing both at the same time. It wouldn't be until like, like Oh eight before I really got full time, you know, only NASCAR as a, as far as a, sure. a profession is concerned. So when did you realize that you were good at it? I don't, I don't really think about it. I, I don't, I don't even, I, I'm my own worst critic. I, I walk away from a broadcast saying, man, I could have done that better. Man, I could have done that video better. I could have done that better. I mean, I don't think, I don't view me as being good. I always think of myself as being, have the opportunity to get better. Right. And it's, I mean, you, you have a good feeling that when you walk away from a broadcast, man, that sounded decent, at sure. least from this perspective, sounded good, but I'm not one of those, oh man, I'm good. Yeah. Well, look at me. That's a turnoff. And to me, if you're that absorbed with yourself, then you don't really care about the product. If it's all about you and, and how you feel you did, then you're not really worried about it. And, and really at the end of the day, we want to put on a good broadcast, right? We want to have, we want to have the listener coming back and say, you know what, man, that was a hell of a time. I think I want to check that out again. Or you know, I heard this show or whatever like that. I want to check that out again. I've never gotten involved with all that. Well, man, this is the day when I arrived and I was the, you know what, and all that stuff. I don't, I don't really go down that path. Right, right, I really right. don't. Okay. Because you know what, in my, I mean, down deep, I mean, I still think that I've got way more to do to get better. I, I don't think that I'm the best that I can be. I believe it. Because I don't I don't view yourself that you get to a certain point and you stop and say, yep, I've checked all the boxes. I'm the best at what I do. Because there's always going to be something that's going to be thrown your way that you're not going to know how to handle. Or you got to really do a double thought about how I'm going to handle this. How am I going to handle that? And then, you know, it's through making mistakes that provides opportunity to learning. And I always say, it doesn't matter what you do. You can be a broadcaster, you could be you know, a banker, you could be uh, you know, whatever. There's always something that comes down the line that will make you better and you get better by making mistakes. As long as you learn from your mistakes yeah. and minimize them going forward, you continue to get better. So I don't ever think of, of ever being, you know, I'm good, I need to stop. To me, it's an evolution and it continues day in, day out, week in, week out, race broadcasting in and out. Fair. So let me rephrase then. When you when you had the opportunity at Watkins Glen, at that point still, it wasn't really something that you were actively seeking out, right? You were content doing the production side of things, running cable, helping on that side of things. When mm -hmm. you did the broadcast at Watkins Glen, and then when you did the subsequent broadcasts and you figured that your higher-ups enjoyed your work and you seemed to be having a good time doing it, when did that click for you? When you realized like, okay, maybe I wasn't seeking this out, but... I'm enjoying this now and I enjoy doing this turn announcing. When did that click for you? Well, it took a while for that to happen because I had to get comfortable. There was when I first started, I was not comfortable in the turn at all because I still didn't know what I was doing. At that time, the only thing I'm doing is trying to reproduce what I was hearing Joe and Barney and, and Eli and Jim and, and, you know, Winston and everybody do right. and, and Alan, and, and I'm still trying to figure it out. I would say it wasn't until, late nineties, early two thousands that I was comfortable enough to where I wasn't nervous in the turn because there were years I was nervous. I mean, you, I would be fine. And then, and then you would hear the opening billboard. And then that's when I'd be like, oh my gosh. So it really took go. that long, like, like several oh, years. Oh yeah. Well, but, but you also have to remember who was on the broadcast with you. These yeah, are yeah. guys that I had listened to for decades. And these are guys that make it sound so easy. These guys make it sound so easy. And here I come, you know, with my new self, 
trying to be like them and I'm not them. I mean, do not misunderstand. At that point, there was no Eli in me. There was, I mean, listen, I'm just trying to hang on. But then, but, but you have to have the front be like, yeah, yeah, I'm good to go. Yeah, yeah. And inside you're just like, oh my God, pass yeah. me a Xanax. I get it. <laughs> you know, I get it. And, and, and it's really, it, it took me a long time to get comfortable. I wasn't looking over my shoulder or anything, but I just wanted to have that feeling of comfort in the turn to where I don't feel like I'm going to heave sure. when I go on the air. And I finally got that in the uh, late nineties, early two thousands to where I, I got that comfort. And then that picked up over time to where now I can do a race and I'm not nervous. Now there's still, there, I still get nervous a little in the morning of the 500 because I get very sentimental. But for the most part, it's like, okay, I can go out there and not be nervous now yeah. and be good to go. And when you hit the mic, it's like, you know, because when you do some races, it takes about two or three laps for the, for the jitters or yeah. the excitement to simmer down. Once you get simmered down, then you start hitting your stride. Then, then, then you keep digging. Right. Um, but it, it, it took, it took a few years to get that comfort. And we're back again, stick around and we'll keep digging next week with Mike for part two of that wonderful, insightful, informative, honest, fun chat. Again, Mike, can't thank you enough. I know I sound like a race car driver and Chase Elliott saying can't thank my guys enough, but for real, really appreciate you doing that. And we will come back for more next week. So get your appetites ready to rock once again in about seven days from when you're listening to this, hopefully. Before we go today, we got to chat a little bit about Road America and what we saw up there in Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin. Is it the last time that we will see NASCAR's Cup Series at that track? I don't know. All signs point to, at least in the immediate future, yes, as the Chicago street course is all but confirmed for next year from multiple various reports. Look, the race itself was a bit of a snoozer, if I'm being honest. It wasn't great. It wasn't terrible either. I think that the race for the win, ultimately between Tyler Reddick and Chase Elliott, really saved the race. I really enjoyed watching them. And obviously, you know by now, because if you're listening to this show, you probably listened to the episode that was a bonus one this week on this very feed with Tyler Reddick himself, the newest first-time winner in the NASCAR Cup Series. Awesome to see him get that win. He had come so agonizingly, painstakingly close a handful of times, and he was finally able to break through. And I think that's a good word for it because he just needed to break the door down and just get it done. And he was able to do that on pure speed, pure merit, pure talent, and outdueled one of the best to ever do it on road courses in the form of Chase Elliott. So congratulations to Tyler on the win. Hopefully we'll be seeing him get into victory lane a little bit more, and maybe his son Bo will become an eight fan instead of a nine fan. But I don't know, Tyler, not holding my breath. And how about Noah Gregson? We got to chat about what happened on Saturday in the Xfinity race, the Henry 180. As of this recording, we actually just got word about the penalties that Noah Gregson was assessed. $35,000 fine, 30 driver points, 30 owner points. If you live under a rock and you're saying, what the hell did he do? Well, he right hooked Sage Karam on a straightaway in a blind corner with no spotters that collected about 10 to 12 other drivers. And Brandon Brown, it looked like for a minute, may have been seriously injured, um, tore up a lot of equipment, spent a lot of money, put a lot of people's health and safety at risk. And it was one of those moves where you say, all right, th that crossed the line. At least it did for me. And NASCAR in the moment did not feel that way. At least they didn't act on it as they didn't penalize him. But later in the week, Elton Sawyer came on TMD. Dale Earnhardt Jr. came on TMD and basically vehemently was against what Noah did and said as much and did not mince any words. And Noah himself and Kelly Earnhardt Miller, too, basically said, look, I made a mistake. He made a mistake. We'll learn from it. They're going to have to learn from it. And although they're pretty solidly locked into the playoffs, those 30 points essentially take them out of contention for the regular season championship. Look, I'm sure Noah is regretful for it. He's said as much, and I'm sure he would probably tell you and tell me that, you know, if he were to do it over again, he would not have done that. He would have gotten revenge on Sage Karam somehow, but that is not the way to do it. It wasn't the time. It wasn't the place. It wasn't the correct way. It wasn't the right thing to do. But all he can do at this point is learn from it and move forward. So that's what he'll do. That'll wrap things up for episode 155 of Victory Lane 2.0. Hope you enjoyed the bonus episode in the feed this week with Tyler Reddick. Hopefully, I'll be able to crank out some more bonus ones for you guys. And I really hope you enjoyed part one 
of my chat with Baggy. If you liked what you heard today from myself, Mike, earlier this week with Tyler, Papa Siegel, maybe even Mama Siegel, do me a favor, leave a rating and a review, subscribe to the podcast. You can do so on any major podcast player or platform, iTunes, Google, SoundCloud. You know where to get the podcast that you consume by now. So please do me a favor and help spread the word. It really, really does help me and this show out. Hope you guys enjoy the racing from Atlanta Motor Speedway this weekend. The action kicks off on Saturday, Xfinity Series, and then also the Cup Series on Sunday. Trucks are in mid-Ohio, as is the Arca Menard Series. A lot of action to take in this weekend. Hope you guys enjoy it. If you're going to be at the racetrack, make sure you stay hydrated and stay safe. Going to be a hot one. Hope everybody had a great 4th of July. and Hope you had a great time this week in Victory Lane. We'll be back next week with Part 2 with Baggy. Until next time, as he would say, so long, everyone. Be good, party people.